If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Nurse Wellness Podcast, hosted by Wendy Garvin Mayo, focuses on the power of stress management and how it's foundational to being your best, doing your best, and giving your best. There's a wonderful episode that you should check out called Letting Go, where Wendy Garvin Mayo shares six strategies to release control and manage stress effectively. Check out Nurse Wellness Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. This is episode 96 of the podcast. If you're a new listener, I want to welcome you. Highway to Health is your place for trusted health guidance and support. Whether you're looking to improve your health or just seeking ways to stay well, we're here for you. This is a growing community on a mission to improve your state of well-being and our experience together on this planet. And before we get started here, I have a, a favor to ask of you. If you haven't given us a review yet, could you take a second here and just pause and scroll down to the bottom of your feed and give us a review and some stars? Your words are the most likely way for a new listener to hit play and get resourced by some of the brilliant minds I've had conversations with here. I really appreciate it. So sex is a topic that never seems to get boring. The chemical flood it provides our brains is perhaps one of the greatest elixirs in life. It's known to almost immediately improve our state of well-being and increase feelings of satisfaction with our lives. Its magic is a bit of a mystery to capture, though, so I've invited a trusted voice in this field of sexual health, Dr. Tara Jansen, who is a sex therapist and also host of the podcast University of Pleasure, to help us sort through some of this so that we might understand uh, some of the common hurdles uh, to a healthy sex life. Because as we begin to recover from this pandemic year and a half, this might be one of the best restorative tools we have for improving our mental state. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Tara Jansen. So you grew up in I grew up Nebraska? in rural Nebraska until I was about 13, and then we moved to Kansas. Yeah, so I would have been in eighth grade, and we moved to Kansas, and then I did sort of an equation of the college that was in the biggest city farthest away that gave me the most money, and so I ended up in Minneapolis at the U oh, of M. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Okay. So I ended up at the U of M in their theater program because I had done a lot of theater in high school. I had a, um, I originally had a double major in biology and theater, and and my advisor advised me to drop my bio major and just study theater, which was a really hilarious recommendation in hindsight. And well, so then I ended up finishing the theater degree there. What, what was the what was high school? I, I know you didn't you come from a tiny tiny town? Well, the first place I came from was not even a town. Like no. my 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 address was rural Route One uh, for where I grew up in Nebraska. So I was born. I guess Menominee is technically the name of, like, the town. You can't really call it that. It was, like, the church. It was a nearby church. It once had a gas station. It burnt down. No one bothered to rebuild it, I guess. What did your folks do? My dad is – my dad was an electrician. He's since kind of gone on to do sort of other things in the world of energy. But um, my mom was a stay-at-home parent and then, you know, kind of started working more odd jobs as I was growing up. So – it was a pretty standard kind of... Was, was he starting a grid there? Or what? Huh? What was, <laughs> was he starting? <laughs> no, no. He worked, on a, he worked on pipelines, so he was gone a lot, actually. Uh. Like, he did electrical work on pipelines, but he was super hard worker, 
definitely got my work ethic from my dad, right? So, like super hard worker. Yeah. And I mean, my mom was too, and you know, but it was, yeah, it was a very different um, area and way of life. And then when we moved to Kansas, you know, a lot of like my relatives in Nebraska, like made fun of us for being city kids. And we moved to a town of like 3000 people. <laughs> so right, yeah. just as a point of reference, yeah. I think my high school graduating class had like 64 or something. Yeah. Something. See, my mom's, my mom's from, from Charles city, Iowa, which was, that's about what her graduating class was. Yeah. And so same thing. And, and also just, just that era, like her parents all came from like depression era, Iowa, you know, just hard living for a long time. So I, I picked up some of that work ethic too. Like yeah. there was, there was no complaining about anything. Yeah. You just do it. That's yeah. what you're supposed to do. Yeah. So I'm like unlearning some of that now <laughs> I, as an adult. I'm like, likewise. oh, you mean I don't have to take every job that comes my way? I don't have to have <laughs> yeah. seven of them at a time? Like, so yeah. it's, it's still a little ingrained, but yeah, I mean, it was just, I've lived, I feel like one of the things that have benefited me as like a clinician, as a provider is that I've like really lived in a lot of different, like I've lived in the country, I've lived in a small town, I've lived in like medium cities, I lived in New York City for yeah. five years, I lived yeah. in Paris for a year, I've, I've just lived in a lot of different, and I've lived in a lot of different like um, sort of neighborhoods and communities. And I do, I do think that those experiences have helped because so, such a huge part of my job is being for able sure. to like relate with people's experiences. So I think it's been helpful. Yeah, me, me, me too. I mean, that's that, that's, and I'm uh, similarly, I've, and I've been, I've been fortunate that I also kind of grew up in, you know, not the, not the wealthiest of uh, mm-hmm. situations. My mom was a young mom, lived for, lived in, in sort of assisted, you know, government housing for a while. But you know, I and now I feel like I can have conversations with just about anybody and relate to their experience. And and even you know when I when I first when I first started college, that was probably the one of the biggest shockers where I was with all these people who had like both parents, both working, lots of money, cars, yeah. <laughs> things that things that I just I couldn't relate to for a while. And I finally found my crew. And luckily, music was sort of my in to like a lot of things with people. And all those musicians are still my friends, basically. Yeah. Um, but, and then New York, same thing, like you get out there and then you, you know, there's like old money in New York, you know, oh, and yeah. then you meet all these people who are like, you know, from these families who have been around for a long time. But I got, you know, I got taken in by a, some really amazing people and some people who were like really into arts and, mm-hmm. and also into, you know, just really open to the kind of work that I do, which is not super mainstream. So it was pretty yeah. great. Yeah. I mean, I, I waited in New York, I waited a lot of tables. Oh, so. yeah. No. You, you met people. <laughs> I waited a lot, but you know what's really interesting? I waited a lot of tables in like some really nice restaurants, so I got to like wait on really wealthy people, and, and frankly, uh, it was a it was probably the most money I absolutely could have made. I mean, I worked at some very nice restaurants yeah. where like it's really funny. Like I when got on. Where did you on, Where did you work? Um, I worked at uh, Tao in oh, the, yeah. the original one, the I original Tao yep. before the one that they opened up, and I worked at a uh, Drew Newperant restaurant in um, like the owner of like Nobu and like uh, yep. Myriad, I think is what the name of the restaurant. I think yep. that's what it was, and like uh, I helped them open a restaurant. It was called My House. It was like it was in Tribeca, you know, and it was really nice. One of the people with sous chefs was on Top Chef. Like it was. I've, I've been to that place. Where, where was it? Where, where in Tribeca was it? It was literally right next to Nobu. It was on the corner yep. of where Nobu was, and yep. it was across from like Miramax. So I used Weinstein to work, used to come in all yeah, the time. I used to work right on right between on, on Leonard Street between Church and Broadway. Okay, yeah, you, you know where it is. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a weird time to be there too because I was there. What year was I there? I think that was probably like 2006, 7, 8, 
It's probably about 2007, 2006, 2007, and yeah. like there's still a lot in that area. It was still a little bit of a ghost town from 9/11. I, well, so, I, I I I started working there in 2000. Oh fall, yeah, fall of 2000, and there were still empty buildings all over the place. Oh yeah. And then it started kind of, you know, coming, I mean, actually, I mean, probably by about the time you were there. I mean, I still have people that I go visit in, in Tribeca, but, and, and I was, I was, to my experience working with wealthy people was they would, you know, I would do out calls basically. Like that was, you know, one of the ways I, since I worked in Tribeca for a while, I got to know all these people downtown. So like I'd go into these loft apartments that had like full trees inside. <laughs> <laughs> Sure, why not? <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it did. It, it just kind of like shut down for a little while. I mean, especially like way downtown, you know, and then all of a sudden that started to kind of come back and then Tribeca is totally different now. But yeah. I, I guess... I guess uh, I don't think I've been back to Tribeca. I came back for grad school in like 2009. And so then I moved back to yeah. Minneapolis only because I had moved so much. So I really didn't have like a home base and I... I'd liked Minneapolis. Mostly I'd like the size of the city. And like, I think I also, I won't lie, I very impulsively made the choice to go to grad school. So like, and it was more of a choice of like, I think I'm done with New York right now. Uh Right. And so I'm, it was more of a choice of like, I don't know, this place was all right. Let me go back to this one. Yeah. You know, then I had my first winter back here again and remembered why (laughs) I maybe left in the first place, but it's, it's a good city. So I obviously stayed. So, so what, where where was high school then for you? High school was in Kansas. In Kansas. So So bigger. Yeah. So it was like, like, like I said, like something like 60 some kids in my class. It was really interesting. I lived in a town that had a lot of individuals that were more like progressive Mennonites. So it was a dry town. Yeah. There was, I went to a public school, but it very much didn't feel like a public school. There was a lot of like sort of religiosity in the school. And, you know, it, it, it was an interesting sort of dynamic of being in a public school that was public, but really didn't feel super public. I, in I, many I know ways. about it. One of my good friends is from Mountain Lake. Okay. Minnesota, which is a big Mennonite community, and she's told me stories all about it. Yeah, her. yeah. It was a, it was sort of an interesting – I actually ended up really loving my high school, like, because I, um, I like, had this experience when I was in, like, middle school and stuff around, like, being, like, good at school and, like, being a nerd and stuff was, like, not – so. there wasn't, like, a lot of social, like, um, social resource to that. Like, nobody really – cared about it. In fact, it really did not make you very popular. Right. And then it was like I when I moved to Kansas, I like landed in this weird like alternative reality of like the most popular kids were the kids that were like good at music and the arts and loved to study and were good at school. And I was like, where have I ended? This is amazing. <laughs> um, so I, I ended up actually having a really much better high school experience just because it was such a good fit for like, I don't know if it was as good a fit for like my siblings, but for me, right? you know, the stuff that I had always been interested in, like literature and the arts and music yep. and yep. that, like our school was, that's the stuff that people cared about, yep. like my peers cared about. So it was like one of the best things that ever happened was me. I never thought that I would say the phrase, one of the best things that ever happened was me moving to Kansas, <laughs> but it really was from like a life trajectory perspective. Yeah. No, I, I I get that. So th- so then, so then you so when you come back from from New York, you you come back to the to the to Minnesota again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I came back to Minneapolis, and that's when I started my. Uh, well, I started working in another. That's not true. I worked as a receptionist for a little while through a temp agency, and then I because I was like, I'm not going to work in a restaurant. I am not going to work in the restaurant. Yeah. But it turns out that it is very hard to get a job with a theater degree that. <laughs> pays you as much as you can make waiting tables, yeah, especially well, I, I when you have a good English resume. Major. I was an English major first, so I, yes. I, I know. So it didn't, 
it, I ended up starting to wait tables again and then I worked in the restaurant industry the entire time I did my master's. And then once I got my master's, I got a job working in an um, inpatient sex offender facility. And I worked through there through the whole time I did my doctorate. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was a lot of, a lot of fast learning uh, that I'm, I mean, it was intense, uh, but it really allowed me to like, you know, because like- there, What was your job? Um, I was a therapist. So I was a master's level therapist okay. um, and doing group therapy and individual therapy. But it was really a very intensive experience because the people you were giving therapy to lived in the home that you were doing oh. therapy in. And so like you just um, never, uh, <laughs> there was there was like this, uh, you know, you would go into the group therapy room and then you'd come out and you'd go in their office and your office and their living room is like, you know what I mean? Outside of your office. Oh my and, goodness. And, and I actually, you know, I actually really value a lot of the work that I did there. And I value a lot of the um, just training and experiences. And, and I still do a lot of sex offender work, actually. And so it's not like the majority of my practice, but I yeah. still do some of it because it, um, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty incredible learning. And it was also really helpful to be, even though it's like insanity it was helpful because i i also had a lot of people in my doctoral program that were awesome but like they weren't working you know and i and i remember being a little resentful at times of like okay that's cool i'll go work like 50 hours a week and then also do this 20 hour a week you know practicum and then you know go to class and like oh you had a hard time with your paper i'm so sorry to hear that <laughs> like you know but everyone's got different experiences but um it was a little intense at times but i do think it it made me uh, get more out of my money because I was able to like really directly apply yeah. like the learning in ways that I don't think I would have been able to yeah. if I wasn't doing clinical work while yeah. I was also doing a doctorate. So so, so that with the sex offender work, you were working with the actual offenders? Yep. Yeah. So I was doing group therapy and individual oh, therapy. Group? Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was um, it was a, a residential program. And so really it was like a, oh, they do, some of the people that were there were doing their you know, program work while they were there, usually maybe as part of like a, a plea bargain, oh, right? Yeah. Like most people, if, if they've, uh, you know, depending on the level of offense, like with certain offenses, you know, you have to complete treatment. And okay. so they were going through treatment, but then it was also like a step out program where then they like gradually reintegrate into the community. And so it was... It was intense. Did, did it affect what you decided to do with your doctoral work? or? Um, I think that I always, like when I started my master's, it really was on a whim. Like I really did just sort of, I just remember watching a TV show one day. Like I was kind of feeling, I was in New York and I was sort of like, ah, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't enjoy, like, you know, I was doing comedy at the time. I was like, I don't know that I enjoy this as much. So like, I think I'm just going to. I think I'm just going to, like, I need to figure something else out. And I was watching a TV show. And, I mean, I wasn't, like, really watching. It was just on. It yeah. wasn't, like, a fan of the show. But it, this guy was, like, a therapist. And I and I was watching him. And I just looked at it. And I remember sitting in my living room just going out loud, like, I can do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> just, so I very impulsively applied for um, a master's program here in Minneapolis. And, you know, like, furiously studied for the, the um, GRE mm-hmm. and managed to get you know, good enough scores to get into the program that I applied to. And, you know, when I got there, 
I didn't have an undergrad in psychology and I was like, oh, I'm going to be so behind. But honestly, I probably only, but I had a liberal arts degree, so it probably only took a couple classes. And so. you did comedy for a while. Like, I, I, yeah. I, I, I would imagine that <laughs> so there's... a study in mental health, yes. Well, it, seriously, and, yeah. and, and I mean, even just even just listening skills, like if you think about, I mean, this is the way I think of the comics that I like. I feel like just sit with this information for long periods of time and are able to process you know, the complexities of things and then, and then regurgitate something that like, you know, it's the pain mixed with the like truth. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's your job to be able to communicate things in a way as a comedian that are relatable enough that everybody can laugh at them. Right. right? Like you have to be able to sort of like filter things through this like lens of relatability. Otherwise yeah. you're not yeah. going to be very popular. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think it was just a, and I and honestly, you know, people ask me in inter, like in, in interviews, like to be a therapist and like to get like internships and jobs. Like, what do you think prepared you best for the world of like counseling and psychology? And every time I answer, waiting tables. Like oh, totally every single yeah. time because yeah. you know you you do a lot of crisis management. You have to be yeah. able to like hold a lot of things at one time, and you have to be able to like keep your cool, and you have to be able to like not let someone else's emotionality interfere with your capacity to yeah, like I present. worked in grocery stores and, yeah. and, and waited. So I, they're both same situations. Basically. Yeah. So I, I think that that was actually probably, and I, and I really mean that, like, I feel like I, by the time I got, especially into like maybe more of the competitive areas of my field around like applying for internships and like stuff like that, I, I was like, wow, yeah, I feel like this really gave me, no, don't get me wrong. Like I got a great education and I'm really grateful for yeah. it, but like, some of those experiences, like both probably in comedy and like performance and then also in in waiting tables. I mean, I waited tables for over 15 years and doing that was like, I was yeah. like, this this really has helped in a lot of different ways. And I, you know, I still have like weight mirrors like everyone else that's waited tables. Like I just had one last night, you know, where your tables are filling up around you and you're, you can't do anything. I've never heard that term before. Weight that's mirrors? Awesome. Oh, anyone that's ever waited tables in a long period of time uh. usually has them where you're just like, you're trying to put the put the thing into the computer and you're, you're just in the weeds. Cause I think there's nothing more helpless than the feeling yeah. of being in the weeds when yeah. you're waiting tables. So I, I have it with my schedule now, actually every oh, once in a while, especially when I'm doing these New York trips. Cause it's like, it's a, it's packed for five days and like everything has to sort of hit and be on. And I have to be really, I have to make sure that I did my schedule right. And I didn't mess up anything cause I'm not going to be back for a while. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I have I have it here sometimes too, and, and I and I have these I don't know what the, what they be scheduling mares where where like <laughs> someone shows up at the wrong time or you know I'm behind like I can't I can't keep up with the schedule that's that's by oh yeah that's my like nightmares I yeah I just you know I don't think that there's just something really acute about the helplessness of being in the weeds when you're when you're doing like work in a restaurant that like everyone I know that's ever done anything they're like oh yeah. 10 years later, 20 years later, I still have those nightmares. Yeah. It's just the most helpless feeling. And I think it's probably reflected in other areas of more than likely, like my work or my life now. But of it course. always like manifests. <laughs> I still am a server in my dreams, and it's been a good decade since I've waited a day. Well, table. you are a server. You, you've <laughs> chosen that apparently in some ways. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's been something that, I don't know, I have a suspicion it'll be with me for like the rest of my career. <laughs> So, so what did you? What, what was your focus in in uh, in your doctor program? Then did you did you have something that was like specific? Or? I so my doctor program was a counseling, uh, just a general like counseling, uh, uh, doctorate of counseling, uh, clinic, and so uh, counseling psychology. Sorry, um, and really like 
you know, in that program, I started really wanting to learn more. And, and I knew that in my master's program, I had an interest in sexual health and gender. And, you know, obviously starting to work in sex offending as well, like right, amplified yeah. sort of my interest yeah. in sexual health. And so I honestly really, you know, everyone and, you know, you have a small cohort usually, so you get to know each other pretty well and you stay with it together. Like, yeah. you know, we had certain people's, people in my cohort that were like, we had one person we're like, oh, she's the yoga expert and like sort of the, <laughs> yeah. right? Like if we want to know anything about like vasovagal responses, we're going to talk to her. <laughs> Right? right. And like, then, you know, everyone was like, oh, it's Tara. She's going to talk about sex. Right. And so yeah. um, one of the things I actually really loved about my program was like that they really encouraged that. Like if you had an area that you were really interested in, because yeah. there was no shortage of papers you had to write and like yeah. presentations you had to give. But a lot of times they gave you a lot of freedom. I mean, that's part of a doctorate, right? Like part of a doctorate is like uh, an undergrad is teaching you the information. A master's is how to use it. And a doctorate is how to create it. Right. And like mm -hmm. that's sort of that, like, yeah. you know, what those levels are. And so I felt like our program actually did a really good job of that, about like giving us a lot of like really great learning, but then like a lot of like sort of freedom to be like, hey, what do you what do you want to learn more about? And then also teach more about. So like teaching oh, okay. was a really big component, yeah. like yeah. getting up and doing presentations on particular topics, you yeah. know, versus them being like, you need to talk about A. It would be more like, you need to talk about something within this giant wheelhouse of psychology, but you get to kind of like pick. So I ended yeah. up doing a lot of, a lot of stuff in sexual health and, and gender as well. What was your dissertation? My dissertation was the uh, sexual experiences of new fathers the year postpartum. Oh, I saw that. I saw a little bit of this. Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. Yeah, I did a qualitative study. Um, I chose to do that because I I was really interested in postpartum sexuality because, yeah. like, obviously having children really changes, like, the trajectory of a couple's sexual life. Super, super um, interesting topic. But no one warns you and no one yeah. tells you. And you, you become you, – you be, I mean, it's it's this one moment where it's, – it's not that you change as a person. It's just that you don't know how this new responsibility – plus uh, a, you know, a, a commitment to another person is going to change who you are and then what that, what that, whatever that relationship was you had with this person afterwards. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and also like guys go through a very different experience. I mean, I treat babies and, I, and so I, I'm constantly talking to new parents and I'm kind of, you know, mm -hmm. in, in some ways trying to give them guidance into what their, what their life looks like now and just little, little ways. But I mean, you can only go through it and, and in some ways. <laughs> yeah, well, and, you know, I, I, I ended up focusing on new fathers because when I was doing the reading, all of the research around, like, postpartum sexuality was really focusing on mothers. Yeah. It was, there was a little bit of maybe, like, dyadic, like, couples functioning, but and this is true of sort of research generally around postpartum issues, not just sexuality, that, like, fathers are just forgotten, right? Yeah. Like, just forgotten. And also, like, Less, like and most research is, you know, I think they're doing a little bit better job, but also not even thinking about queer couples, right? But like, yeah. so when I started like really digging in, I was like, nobody's asking fathers what's happening for them during yeah. this time. And you know, when you think of relationships as systems, right? Like, hmm. Well, the research that exists suggests moms are going through a lot. So one would, one would assume in a heterosexual dynamic, right? That right, and whatever the partner dynamic is, regardless of gender orientation, that like the other partner's being really impacted by yeah. this. And so I did a bunch of interviews, and you know it was really funny. Like all of the interviews I did, because it was qualitative. Uh, like every single one of them, the participants at some point were like, "Thank you for asking me." That's so about what 
happened with me. It's so interesting. And, and, I, and I, I heard that, that you, you got way more information if you didn't meet them in person than if you... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. <laughs> People often gave me a lot more sort of data if, if it was like I did a couple over the phone and then I did some in person. Right. And I did know and that's anecdotal, but I right, did right. notice, right? Like I didn't I didn't have huge numbers in terms of my participants just because it's qualitative. So yeah. and also I was a doctoral student. You can't I didn't right. have endless grants to, to sort of do that, but I did notice sort of anecdotally because you know it's it is a thing to like and I was asking people, you know, pretty intimate questions right. about their sexual experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And so the fact that I got people to participate at all. But what's really interesting is the people that participated were a, a number of them actually talked about like a being really happy that someone was asking them about those experiences, but then afterwards, a couple of people were like, "That was really helpful. That felt really cathartic to talk about that so, because it was a hard time, or it still is a hard time." It's so. it's and I I've, so one of the things I picked up on early. I've been treating babies for like fifteen, maybe a little more of the years now, seventeen years, and I, I started picking up on this thing that I mean. There's a lot of that I, a lot of the support that I was doing was around breastfeeding and, mm-hmm. and about you know there was usually some something going on where the baby was either causing pain or there wasn't a good latch there was tongue tie there was something going on or there was an allergy going on you know so there was GI issues going on and and one of the things that I that I picked up on very early on was that when the dad was in the room you know came to the came to the visit as well there was like a whole different dynamic in the way that like. They would look at each other and discuss the problem, and the dad would be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I've noticed that too." Whereas if the mom just came to the session and was like pouring all this stuff out, it was almost like she didn't she didn't have the sense that the, that the husband was or the if, if it's a you know a gay partner that 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 they were sort of experiencing the same thing, and so that was that was a, a real challenge because they were then experiencing all the emotions them, themselves and they felt like the other person wasn't really there for them. But when they were all there together, and sometimes I would have like, if there was like a mother-in-law involved or, mm-hmm. or a care, you know, a, a nanny or a caregiver or something, I would say, bring as many people as you can because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain this whole situation and the timelines of it and all that stuff. And once everybody was on track, it was like the problem resolved. You know, it's it is as, as to your point that it's an ecosystem. You know, we're this is what we're really trying to work on improving. I mean, any relationship, but I mean, we forget that when we start a family that we're, we're that we're there. Right. Well, and it's you know it's very interesting because working in sexual health, right? Like I do a lot of just standard sex therapy around like maybe people that are struggling with certain type of like sex, like quote unquote sexual dysfunctions, right? Like let's say like erectile dysfunction. I do a lot of sexual pain work, right? right um, yeah. Uh, orgasmic issues and a lot of times people come in individually right and they're very and if they have a partner they're maybe often surprised or their partner's surprised when I'm like oh if you have a partner your partner needs to come in Uh, like really the treatment of choice for things like any type of sexual dysfunction is usually going to be if a partner is involved is with a partner right because of that dynamic because it's really hard to treat something that somebody's doing with another person just by themselves and don't get me wrong i've had like clients over the years where maybe it's someone coming in individually but more often than not like you're you're working on the dynamics that are occurring together because obviously you know not always people have their own individual dynamics during like masturbation and such but like a lot of things around sex are about, you know, relation dynamics between yeah. two people. And so if you only address one aspect of it, you typically aren't probably going to be yeah. – make, you make a little progress, but you can definitely make more progress when you get other people yeah. sort of involved in the picture. 
and it goes much faster. Yeah, well, for sure. <laughs> so, and and also to create. I mean, this is with any field. You're, you're creating a, a like a language to sort of talk about these things with too. And and there's, I'm sure, with your field, there's like some discomfort in the language that they have to get oh. over first. Oh yeah, I mean, like you know, you brought up my dissertation, and and I was like, it's like surprise, not surprised. Like how many people I was like, you know, one of the questions that I asked is like, you know did the two of you talk about, like, maybe, because, you know, people were bringing up a number of, like, concerns they had about their sexual relationship, and I would ask questions about communication, and people, you know, the broad majority of my participants were like, no, we never talked about it. We still haven't talked about it, right? And in my field, like, you know, because we have not done a great job teaching people how to talk about issues of, like, sex and sexuality, right? Like, you know, you get sex ed, and you don't get sexual communication 101 often as a part of that. I mean, some schools are maybe doing a really amazing job, but a lot of times you don't, so... We haven't really, you know, you can't know what you never learned, right? So we don't have a culture of, generally speaking, a lot of folks that, like, have had a lot of practice with that. And so such a huge part of my job is, like, if I can get people in a room, like, that's step one to getting them to start to, like, actually communicate. And not to overestimate it, but it's it's pretty essential in most problem solving. (laughs) So, like, if, and, and it really, it's amazing how quickly once people start talking, like, people start to have just much more nuanced understandings of like themselves and each other. And like, you know, I'm not saying it's always like easy peasy. I do a lot of couples therapy that can get a little, get a little dicey sometimes. Right. But like, so I don't want to like oversimplify the the process of change, you know, like there's always degrees of complexity of what somebody might be struggling with. Right. But I think that when you can just get people in the same room. And also part of my job is to help people manage their emotionality to a degree that they can actually have some of those dialogues and like right. hear one another. So that's, I would say that's actually the bigger part. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I would that. imagine though that, that, that back to the language part that uh, I was an English major, remember? So, oh, yeah. so that, but that I think people have to get comfortable with certain terms oh, yeah. to be able to say them out loud. I mean, I'm even surprised, you know, if I say words like hips or whatever, that like my teenager sort of thinks that's funny sometimes. Oh, like yeah. th- th- that's just a simple word. But once you get into the sexual terminology, to, because because you, you there, there are points where you have to be specific. Like oh, yeah. I mean, especially like if I, like I, I always kind of talk with clients about like, you know, part of what we doing in the we're doing in the beginning is just good old fashioned exposure therapy around talking about sex, right? Yeah. Like because yeah. you can't talk about for a culture that like talks about sex a lot, we don't talk about sex. Yeah. Right? Like we talk about it in this like very broad, sort of overarching, like titillating way. Yeah. But we don't like specifically right. talk about sex, right? right. So uh, you know, and again, there's always exceptions. There's some people that are just doing a great job with it. But mm, we haven't as a theme done amazing. And so, you know, usually like, you know, there's like maybe some work, like let's say someone's coming in for anorgasmia, which is like difficulty with orgasm. Yeah. You got to get really specific, right? Like if I'm just sort of like, so you can't tell me what you're doing. And someone's like, well, I'm touching myself, right? Like, do you know what I mean? Like there's just not, or they're touching me. If you just leave it that vague, like you, you really can't get anywhere. And so you have to be able to, really have really open, specific dialogues and, like, language becomes a really big issue. And I try to be really thoughtful about – I usually, like – 
have like my spiels with folks, you know, at the beginning where I'm like, look, I talk about sex all day, every day. I have no filter left, but I understand that that's not every person's daily right. experience, right. right? So I always try to give people like permission and space, like that's going to take a little time for you to get used to. And it's probably going to feel abrasive that I do. And if at any point in time it make you uncomfortable, let me know. Or if you're like not ready to talk about it in that way, like say pass or whatever, because yeah. I, I want people to like have the space to grow into that. And I don't expect people to be able to match me as the provider because like I am legit talking about sex. Yeah. I mean, I probably say masturbation and like, you know, all of these things like masturbation, fingering, anal, right? Like I say this stuff like maybe a <laughs> yeah. hundred times a week. Yeah. So for me, it's just like, you know, the same as like talking, you know, like plants, like it doesn't matter. Right. I know. I get it. It's interesting, you know, I was just thinking about how I, when I first started to to your like career and your path a little bit, I, I took it when I first started the podcast, one of my friends talked me into doing an improv class. Oh, yeah. Um, at, at Brave New Workshop. Yeah, workshop. I took improv. Did Brave you? New Workshop, yep. And um, <clears throat> then he only came to like two classes and then I was there by myself the whole time, yeah. which was actually <laughs> the best thing, right? Probably. And, and, and one of the things, you know, everybody knows probably the, the one part about, about improv, which is the yes and, like you never shut anything down with a no. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing that one of the teachers, I don't know if you learned this, but was that at some point, like when you're doing these, you know, sort of this work together with another person, one part of it is that you have to make a declaration at a certain point. Right. Like I, I need, I think, I feel, I want, that kind of stuff. But it's it's very similar to like, what you what you have to probably coach in the bedroom. Oh yeah. Like getting people like to talk about needs and their needs and what they are and you know, also like reframing the idea of selfishness, right? right. Like the talking about what you want and what you need is often a very like giving thing to do. <laughs> because people are often, especially in sexual relationships, are often like if you're not telling them, they don't know. And a lot of times it might be quite distressing because they're sort of just like shooting fish in a barrel, right? <laughs> yeah. Or they're just kind of like playing guesswork, maybe based on a past partner. Or a really common thing is what do people do? Well, they do what they would like, right? Um, oh, yeah. And yeah. so, but people do struggle. I mean, I think it's a super relevant point. Like people have, I have to often help people. I shouldn't say I have to. I love my job. I get to. Yeah. Um, I get yeah. to help people sort of figure out like what those needs are and then practice like saying them out loud and yeah. like talking to other people about them. And, you know, also like sometimes navigating rejection of said needs, right? Yeah. A huge part of my job is also like not everyone's going to be into what you're into, yeah. right? And how do you negotiate that and Workarounds. how do you negotiate that yeah. within a relationship? And I'm, I, I think the favorite part of my job is like getting creative and helping people get really creative yeah. about that, right? Like sometimes negotiation is is a is an exercise in creativity. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, you get to do different things. And there's the improv people. again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean I did a lot of improv. <laughs> so I don't know that I was any good, but I did a lot of it. Yeah. Oh, that's that's so interesting. So is that the primary part of your practice or are you doing anything else? Well I do I also um uh work with gender as well. So like I work with individuals that are maybe questioning gender or doing gender mm. exploration or are seeking with just support and navigating the process of transition just because when people transition, there's a lot of different systems we're yeah. having to navigate. And yeah. um, obviously, you know, navigating prejudices and cultural stigma and all sorts of stuff. And so I do a fair amount of work as well with um, that kind of uh like process for individuals and then sometimes also the intersection of that with like sexual relationships so let's say somebody's transitioning within a marriage right oh, yeah. and let's say 
person that's not transitioning thought that their partner was going to be identifying in gender A, but now they're identifying in gender C, right? So that, like, makes shifts and stuff to sexual relationships and romantic relationships. And, you know, those are all things that I might help people navigate. I do a lot within the realm of sexual health. I like the variety of it. So I, like, kind of the areas where I do work would be I do some work with sexual offending. I do some work with, like, mm, some people might describe it as like sexual compulsivity or out of control sexual behaviors. It kind of depends on the language that the person would like to use, but yeah. basically just sexual behaviors that they don't want to be engaging in that they are. Yeah. Um, sexual values sort of work and maybe sometimes the clash between a person's wants and their sexual values. So as a result, I talk about religion a lot. Oh, yeah. I do a lot of like work with individuals around sort of uh, value systems and maybe sexual wants and needs and oh, yeah. how those also, how they feel about their behavior. And then I do just good old fashioned couples sex therapy, like desire discrepancy, which yeah. is kind of one of the more common issues. One person yeah. wants sex more than the other. Yeah, yeah. And now there's conflict, right? Yeah. So I do that. And then, um, you know, like kink, BDSM, do a lot of work around open relationships and polyamory yeah. and like yeah. helping people that are maybe seeking to open their relationships up or frankly just looking for providers that are going to be knowledgeable about it and not give them crap when they just want to talk about normal stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, because I've, I've seen a number of clients over the years that are like, like maybe they have like certain kinks or BDSM interests or like they have an open relationship or polyamorous relationship or swinging and they come in and they're like, look, we don't even need to talk about that. That stuff's going fine. We just want a provider that like every time we talk about like our conflict about our kids isn't going to bring up our open relationship. Right. Like, so also just seeking sort of affirming providers. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, I, it's interesting because I've, I've worked with a lot of sexual trauma and one of the things that I've, I also do sexual trauma work. Sorry. I forgot to mention that. I figured, um, it seems impossible not to, Yeah, (laughs) you know, and, and one of the things that, that I've found interesting is that I'm not really, because I'm not a therapist, it's not my focus to focus on the sex part for them, mm-hmm. you know. And but, but what I'm trying to do is to help them identify where in their body they feel, if they're, especially if they're having. I mean, a lot of times there's this crossover with like chronic pain, trauma, and and that kind of thing. And so, I'm trying to help them identify where they feel these things or where they feel them right now, not necessarily where they had them in the past. And that's one of those things of like bringing them current if they had chronic pain for a period of time, like. Oh, I'm actually not having chronic pain anymore. I'm just like my shoulder hurts once in a while, or when I'm stressed, I notice my neck or something like that, right? But what I've what I've learned from from doing that work is that, uh, especially if they had childhood sexual trauma, a lot of times they they end up think. Well, a lot of the therapists that they've worked with, and I think this is changing a lot. I mean, I've seen like in the last like ten years a big shift in the way that therapists are are working. I think, and and I think part of it is that they're not. They're not coming into it with like some ideas about, especially about sex, that the sex is the problem with whatever else is going on in their life with their relationships and their marriage and everything. Because a lot of times what I'm learning when it, when they sort of, sometimes they'll go through, there's a part of my work that ends up getting into the, what we call somato-emotional release, where when they have an emotional response, if I'm in a specific area and they're able to verbalize what's going on with with you know, an image, a memory, something like that, then we, then I just engage with that. And a lot of times they'll, they'll all of a sudden take me to a place beyond this, this, what they thought even in the, in the beginning was, was part of their sexual trauma to just something that a, a partner or a parent or somebody said that was in some way related to that, but it's actually not about the sexual trauma at all. Mm-hmm. It's just that they didn't listen to the fact that they were 
just struggling a little bit. Right. You know, something as simple as that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, <clears throat> sex is such an act of vulnerability, right, for yeah. m- many people. And it's, it you know, like, part of the reason that I find working in sexual health so fascinating, right, is that, like, a lot of times, you know, you know, in, th- in different models of therapy, right? So I'm a doctor of psychology and a certified sex therapist, right? So I sort of have training in (laughs) these kind of like layered areas. But, you know, in certain, you know, maybe areas of like thinking around like working on couples issues, like historically, you know, sometimes if somebody sees someone that's maybe not trained in sexual health, there's been this historical assumption that like, okay, hey, if a couple is having um, sexual problems, just work on the overall relationship and the sex will get better, right? Mm -hmm. But often that doesn't actually happen, right? That, yeah. Because, you know, sometimes there is something specific about the sexual relationship or sometimes, like, there's just really complex interactions between the two. And so what's really fascinating and has been fascinating to me is that, like, you know, um, a lot of times I'll give people sort of sexual assignments, but usually, like, whatever degree that, like, feels appropriate, like, especially if someone has trauma or stuff, like, I like, want to make really sure that whatever we're doing feels like, hey, this feels challenging, but not, like, so challenging it would be, like, distressing, right? Like, you're, I mean, that's also kind of like exposure therapy. You're always looking for, like, it's kind of like if you go to the gym and you don't, if you don't break a sweat, you probably didn't really do much, you know? You want it to be mildly uncomfortable, but you don't want it to be so uncomfortable that you, like, harm yourself in some kind of way. And so... Like, I will often give couples or maybe individuals certain assignments, right? And a lot of times my expectation, especially in the beginning, is they're not going to do them, mm. right? And it's not like a trick question. Really, I give it and I tell usually people, I want I want you to try this and I just want to see what happens. There's not a specific outcome yeah. that I'm seeking. And what's very fascinating, particularly in like maybe couples dynamics, this happens often, is people won't do it and they won't do it. And it's usually like sort of a gentle intro, right? Oh, it's yeah, like super gentle intro or something like both people have like totally agreed, you know, it sounds easy. Like I'll do yeah. something like, I want you to take a shower together. Yeah, right. Right, like something pretty, you know, like it depends on the couple, right? Like for some people that would be way too much and for other people that would be super mild. And a lot of times, you know, whether they do it or whether they don't, it's data collection because a lot of times people won't. And they'll be like, well, the problem is sex, right? And I'll be like, okay, well, here's like a really specific thing you can do. And then, you know, they won't do it and they won't do it. And then, you know, then we get to have this conversation of like, I can't help but noticing that you're not doing this. And I think that's probably about something else. There's no effort. Right? Like, what is that about? (laughs) And then you start talking about that greater relationship and maybe greater issues that are going on in it. And again, sometimes it's a good way to sort of weed that out because sometimes when you start giving people that more behavioral work, you can start to see maybe the emotionality that lies underneath. And that's for me, it's always relevant because I think for a long time, people have always kind of thought that like, hey, like you have to work on the overall relationship first and, you know, leave that alone because it'll be fine. The sex will be fine if everyone's getting along and they're talking, they're communicating well. But sometimes if you sort of do the reverse, you actually can pull out a lot more rich sort of data. Mm. And then also as a complete aside, I have plenty of couples whose overall relationship is functioning fantastic and their sex is just terrible, Uh right? And that's usually more about like, Lack of experience, sex education, learning, right? Like just um, pre-existing beliefs about one another, not talking about their needs. And honestly, usually that stuff gets worked out pretty quickly. If the relationship's good. Yeah. What about if the sexual relationship's good and the rest of it's kind of on the rocks? You know, those couples are are always really, and it's always different, right? There's always so much, you know, individual variability. But I think that 
<laughs> sometimes people get really attached to this idea of like, but what if this is the best sex I'll ever have in my life? <laughs> right? And like, that's like a real thing, right? I can see that. I've had yeah. actually a lot of individual clients that are like, I'm in this relationship. It's terrible. Everything about it makes me miserable. But I am very afraid that I will never have sex that's as good as this sex. Because sometimes the thing that like makes good sex is like, you know, like people sort of perceive like passion and high emotionality yeah. is tension what, or... right. And tension is what creates a good sexual experience. And don't get me wrong, like that can, yeah. but that's just ah sexual dynamic that can energy. be, yeah, that can be a fun sexual dynamic. Right. There's also lots of people can have like really quiet, intimate, peaceful sex that can blow their minds, right? And totally. like, you know, be multi-orgasmic and like, you yeah. know, there's... And so I think sometimes people get um, attached to sort of that there is a way to be sexual and that, you know, that if they lose that, that somehow then like, that's it, their sex life has been ruined for the rest of time. And like, so sometimes that work would look more like maybe helping somebody kind of, or a couple, let's say it's a couple, like sort of being like, I think, like build some hope that, I think you could also find good sex elsewhere. It doesn't yeah. have to be in this super chaotic situation. And then, you know, helping people maybe expand their understanding of what a good sexual relationship can look like, even yeah. if it doesn't involve, like, a high degree of, like, emotionality, quote-unquote, drama, yeah. which sometimes can be a thing that really amplifies a, a sexual yeah. dynamic. That's interesting. Because it's also not sustainable. I talk a lot with people about sustainability. Yeah, right. That's the, that is another part of it, right? It's not sustainable. Like, like the beginning of a relationship is going to be different than you yeah. Know, I mean, literally, your brain is being like yeah, your brain's being like hijacked <laughs> by like a bunch of different like you're not going to be able to sustain that, right? right? Like maybe you can find ways to like that's the thing about novelty, right? Like novelty and sexual like people are often seeking novelty in sex, and in yeah. many ways, like you can do that within an existing relationship or relationships, yeah. but you can't ever truly have like novelty in that like absolute fresh first time right. new sort of way and so just by nature of what it is like some of those things just aren't sustainable right, right? or like then a, the imagination has to get a lot better yeah i mean you have to try i mean and that's the thing like people i i think um there's this sort of idea of it's like one of like i like research that i would call no duh research where you read it and you're like yeah, yeah, yeah like, too. no duh, but, like, also thank you for putting that into words. Like, yeah. you kind of know it's true, but it's like that. But there's, like, people will talk about the difference between sexual destiny beliefs versus sexual growth beliefs. So sexual destiny beliefs are, like, sex should be good because we're destined to be together, right? Like, it should be good because we love each other. Yeah. And so that means our sex should be good and it should be fun and we should high, have high satisfaction. There shouldn't be any problems. Yeah. And then there are sexual growth beliefs, right? People who believe that, like, yeah, I mean, we got to, like, do stuff here. We got to, like, try. <laughs> yeah. gotta, like, it's not going to happen on its own just because we love each other and we care about each other. There's, like, an effort that has to right. be put in on, on our parts or on, our, on my part as an individual. And not shockingly, when you look at research, people that have growth beliefs tend to have better, higher satisfaction, more kind mm. of, like, longevity in their sexual relationships than individuals that have those destinies. Because they're, they're, they're thinking about it, that it's going to evolve and change over a long period of time. Yeah, I mean, I, and they're also thinking about the idea of, like, effort, right? That it takes right. effort. Because it, what's really interesting, I mean, I don't even know how many individuals or couples or, or dynamics that might come into my office where 
people are really distressed because something's not working and it's supposed but they feel like it's supposed to be and you know it's not that they're lazy individuals or that they don't want to try it's just that they've really sort of learned to believe that they shouldn't have to right that it should just be going well because that's I mean, why wouldn't people believe that? It's sort of what we teach people, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, it's, it's, sex is supposed to be easy. But I have a year-long waiting list that would suggest that it's not that easy for people. <laughs> right. So, and, you know, I got a lot of supervisees with full waiting lists, you know? And so I think that, and a lot of colleagues, they're just amazing, and people are booked to their eyeballs. And I think right. that, you know, anecdotally, that would suggest that perhaps it's not as easy as it seems like it should be for right. individuals. So, so I, I always think of health as being sort of this this middle road of like having a balance or you know having a contentment with a certain place that you are with something, um, because we we're always going to have challenges and there's going to be ups and downs in terms of like having problems and recovering and moving forward and all that stuff. But how do you define what sort of sexually healthy looks like? Um, with all these v- different variables, you know, yeah. compulsivity and, and <laughs> you know, n- not, no interest or no desire and, you know, pain yeah. or all these different things that you can deal with. Right. Like that's the million dollar question. We could talk legitimately for like oh, the next sure, like, 50 sure. years um, about that. It's because. Okay. You the, have five words. Back. But yeah, <laughs> Just kidding. Well, I have two. It depends. <laughs> um, uh, I would say that it, that's like the, every psychologist's favorite answer. It depends. Um, but it really does. Right. Like it depends on like when I. I don't think that there's a standard of like, you know, we used to always talk about like healthy sexuality, right? But there's no real definition of what that is, right? Like mm-hmm. one person's healthy might be another person's unhealthy, right? Like let's say one person can easily use pornography with no problem, right? Yeah. But another person uses the same amount and it actually is really distressing or yeah. becomes distressing yeah. within their couple, like within their partnership or it causes further problems in some other way, right? Yeah. Um, and so... I really, my work is really individualized. I mean, that's sort of the philosophy that I take on. And I think sexual health is really about the person or the persons that are kind of sitting in front of me. And what I think about when I think about healthy sexuality is, can you find a way to integrate it with like the other needs in your life, right? Like your, your value systems, right? Like your relationships, Mm -hmm. like uh, the responsibilities that you have. And then more than anything, like, is it sustainable? Because a lot of times people will try to engage in sexual health in a way that just really isn't sustainable because it's not realistic, right? Like, so let's say somebody thinks that healthy sexuality is never, ever having a fantasy about somebody or a sexual thought about somebody that's not their partner. Yeah. That's probably, from a human sexuality perspective, not sustainable. But maybe they have a value system that suggests that, like, it would be really wrong or bad, you know, to have a thought like yeah, that. Gotcha. And so then my work is usually helping people negotiate that value. Cause it's not my job to pay change people's value systems. Yeah, it's yeah. my job to help people work within theirs and find ways to have sex fit yeah. and mold into that in a way that also allows for like, you know, that, you know, like something that is sustainable that they can also feel better about. And, you know, maybe if they're somebody that's engaging sexually with other people, they can navigate it with partners yeah. and whatnot. So I don't know if that answered your question. No, but that's but. that. I, and, and I know this is complex. And if, and for anyone who wants to learn more about any number of subjects, you have a podcast called University of Pleasure. Yes, I do. So, so that's, and, and, you know, our, our, we, we have a slightly different topic that we wanted to get into, but I, but I think it's good to have a foundation for, 
for some, just, just anyone who's kind of trying to figure out like how they feel about their own sexual health. You know, I mean, just, just to, and I think what you said that is so important is that it is individual, has to fit with your value system, with your, with your base needs as well. Mm -hmm. So, but, but the one thing that you and I started talking about, which I, I haven't really even put in, put that much thought into in my own life, although I think I sort of know how it fits for myself (laughs) a little bit, is that this idea that, that sex has a, a certain kind of uh, impact on your mental health. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, like, you know, it's something that we don't talk about often. Like, so, for instance, like, I do, I do a lot of training of other therapists, and I do a lot of maybe even uh, talking with, like, physicians about, like, how to talk with clients about sex and sexuality. And, you know, I'll ask often people, like, how many of you ask questions about sex and, you know, sexuality in your intakes? How many of you ask questions mm. about sex and sexuality in your practice? And overwhelmingly, a lot of providers are, like, I don't, right? Like that seems too personal. I'm like, yeah. really? We're asking them a lot of other personal questions. So, and, and I don't, and and yet I get a lot of information from people, yeah. especially if they're struggling with a relationship or have had some sort of sexual trauma in the past, or you know, had just have trouble with sex or in a lot of different ways. How how it's affecting them? Yeah. Well, and and the really interesting thing is that when you look at research um, on people's level of sexual satisfaction, you know, it is highly and positively correlated with overall relationship satisfaction mm-hmm. and highly and positively correlated with overall life satisfaction. And more anecdotally, you know, when things are a struggle, and sometimes that's maybe someone's not having sex or someone is having more than they want or not having the kind of sex that they want, it can be a really distressing issue, right? Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. especially because a lot of stuff with sex, sex and shame are besties. Like, <laughs> that's so true. Like, they hang out, they party together. And so, a lot of the work I do is often around shame, right? Or yeah. supposed tos. So we, we, we have created a cultural narrative mm-hmm. that. Sex should be easy and it should be fun, but not too fun, right? Like there's all these like sort of double standards, like enjoy it, but don't enjoy it, but enjoy it with the right person. And like, yeah. are you having it? Is it too, is it too loud? Is it too this? Is it too that? And so we have this constant like tug, you know, like kind of push and pull with people around sex and sexuality. And what that does is it not shockingly creates a lot of internal tension. Oh yeah. And you know, you're 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 in healthcare. A lot of times, people don't come in when something is just becoming an issue, or no, yeah, right? Exactly. They're coming in when it's been an issue for a while, and yeah. especially sex is a topic that people are often really embarrassed to talk about. And so, by the time I see people, there's usually been this kind of like perfect breeding ground for a yeah. lot of shame or a lot of guilt or a lot of sometimes anger, right? And it depends on what the dynamic is. Like, let's say it's a couple's dynamic of like desire discrepancy. I don't see couples, I mean, I have some really proactive couples that have come in and they're like, hey, this is just starting to be a problem. You know, this person's interested in a type of sex or more sex than I am and yeah. blah, blah, blah. And let's, we want to negotiate that before we really dig in. I mean, that's happened. But that's rare. That's the exception, right? Yeah. Like more often than not, I'm seeing people when it's been a very big problem. Yeah. And there's been a lot of anger and a lot of resentment and guilt and shame and sadness. And so you're really kind of having to help people unravel that. And, you know, I don't even know how many clients I've had talking about just how impactful it is to like, like de- levels of depression, anxiety, right? Yeah. Like it is, it is 
infiltrating their overall quality of life. Do you have to separate them for periods of time sometimes if they're dealing with really individual issues to sort of help them understand first Um, and then come back together? Yeah, sometimes it really depends on like if it's couples work. Like So sometimes it's individually, right? Like I might see someone who individually is having some of those struggles. Um, But if it's couples work, sometimes, um, you know, I might, and it depends on the couple, like, do sort of a split where I'm like, all right. And honestly, it's more about time, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, I know. Always. Sometimes people aren't ready to talk about something or they don't know how to talk about something yeah. in front of their partner. And so we might meet individually and I help people maybe develop the language or, you know, kind yeah. of support them in being able to be honest about maybe their wants, maybe their needs, what it is that they are struggling with so that we can kind of get to that more easily in yeah. therapy. Um, and, you know, there are also times where I might, it's just too big of a job for like a session or something with me. So I might have them like suggest that they get an individual therapist. You know, I have a number yeah. of individual therapists. I know they're fantastic. And so I have a lot of people, as I'm sure you do, like yeah, that, yeah. you know, that you kind of like work in conjoint with yeah. and you collaborate. And so it really kind of depends on what the situation is. But in terms of like that impact, you know, I can think of like, several people just this week that I've talked about how distressed they are and you know how much that really is impacting their overall mental health and just generally their overall quality of life and I think that we have done a great disservice to people in many ways by suggesting like even as like you know when I was um, going to school we never had a sexual health class at any point in time right and we're talking about mental health And we have all this research that supports that it, now I'm actually teaching a sexual health course there, but but like, right. But like it, it's just kind of speaks to like, it's, and I think a lot of schools are now integrating sexual health, like, like, you know, um, medical schools and like, and a lot of places because we've really ignored it as like a really big part of somebody's overall health. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with like, as providers to our own discomfort and knowing how to ask those questions or how to talk about those things. Cause yeah. I certainly know, like I didn't start out just it feeling easy peasy, right? Like oh, yeah. it's absolutely something that takes like practice and you know, you're also taught to keep really good professional boundaries and you know, sometimes it does feel really intrusive to be asking somebody really oh, intimate sure. questions about their sexual life and you want to be thoughtful about those boundaries yeah. and not making people feel uncomfortable. And so it's, I think it's been something that has maybe felt easier, especially in the field of mental health for people to avoid talking about. But the problem is, is then we were suddenly not talking about a giant chunk of a person's life. Right. And so, you know, you're kind of missing out. And, and I can imagine just like, so for, you know, with my work, if, if I usually come, people come to me with some sort of, you know, physical distress, right? I'm trying to help them get past that. And then I, I take a much more educational model than maybe some people do because I do movement work and, and, and body work. But, you know, what, what I'm then trying to do is say, okay, you can take charge of this. I mean, this is, this is the way I always feel like the, the beginning period is like handholding, like, okay, I got you take you through this process and then the, and then the next part is starting to give them tools while I'm still kind of you know working on on the healing process and then once we don't have symptoms or anything that's like really extreme then it's like okay I'm going to keep giving you little bits of homework and then you keep you know checking back in for tune-ups basically mm-hmm. like we don't want this to ever get back to where it was before and I'm sure that's got to, you you must have people who do that with you now too right yeah I do a lot of maintenance sort of therapy with folks I mean it's really interesting because a lot of times people stop and I'm sure it's similar in other areas of health yeah. but people um, 
stop treatment once a crisis is over. Yeah. And, I, and I'm always like, no, 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 no. Therapy yeah. begins after the crisis is over. <laughs> right. The rest of this is just crisis management. Right. And so You're a just lot, trying to get back to ground zero. Yeah, so I do see part of my job is like educating people in terms of, I think my informed consent is like, like probably 20 minutes at this point. So yeah. Because yeah. like a lot of it is also like educating people on like what the process ideally would look like, yeah. right? Because you want to set realistic expectations for people because, you know, yeah, like... Yeah, I do the same. Yeah, because if people walk in my office and they are coming in with a really calm... And don't get me wrong, I have some people come up with pretty simplistic issues and some simple sex ed is actually all that was needed, yeah. right? Those are great. It's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> but again, those are more the exception. Right. I want people to know that like, hey, this is going to be a process and... The goal, like, you know, you can treat symptoms, right? But you also want to treat underlying cause, right? Yeah, and, yeah. um, or at least manage cause yeah. to the degree that you can, that you're actually, you're not just putting a Band-Aid, right? Like right. I talked to people about like, it's like pulling weeds when I was like young growing up in Nebraska, right? Like, yeah. you know, my, there was, my dad would have us go out. I, I'm, it's hilarious now because he would, he, we lived in the country and my dad would be like, go pull weeds, which is literally an infinite <laughs> endless task, right? Like I think about it now and I'm like, what an a-hole. Like I can't believe he, but we were kids and we were dumb and we didn't know. But we had this like old scissors in our garage, like this old, like rusty, like weed scissors, right? And like, you know, as a kid, I was thought I was so smart because I'm like, yeah, I'm getting them, you know, like it looks like I got them all right. But you know, when you don't pull them out the root, they just right. grow back right away. I yeah. mean, uh, and so, like, you know, I talk a lot with my clients around, like, you know, we can do a lot of symptom management, and that's important, right? It's important yeah. to get you to a better place. But what I want to get you to a better place to do is now to start to address causality. Right. And or at least contributing factors. That's that's exactly what I do. And, and, and even recognizing patterns, too. I mean, and I think I'm sure your work is very similar in that way. I'm looking more at, like you know, postural and physical type things, but, but to be able to stay with the awareness, you know, even, even when things are, are sort of good so that you don't let yourself backslide to those places again too. Right. Yeah. There's a, there's a ton of, um, I mean, I, I would see my job as like mostly patterns, right? Like oh, identifying like yeah. patterns of behavior, patterns of thinking. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm doing couples therapy, like relational patterns, right? Like, Hey, and, and a lot of times, a lot of my job is observing those because pe- when you're in it, right, when you're in the eye of the storm, you don't really recognize what's going on. And yeah. so a lot of the times, like, I'll be like, here's the pattern that I see. Does that feel real? And people will be like, yes, right? And, like, you are trying to help people develop almost a hyper-awareness of those so that they can intervene sooner and sooner and sooner, yeah. right, in that, in that process. Or even, like, a person's own thinking patterns around thing A, B, C, or D. And so, and again, it really... All of that kind of depends on what kind of the presenting issue is or why people might be coming in because I think that there's certain things that I might treat that have um, more specific models around them and then there's other things that like almost look more like just traditional therapy. Right. so, so we so we know that that, that sex has an impact on how we what our the state of our mental health is. But I'm sure there's variability there too. I mean, I'm just I'm just trying to figure out like to give to give a baseline or to have. I know you're a big researcher too. So, uh, how? Oh, I'm not a big researcher, but I read a lot. Of re- it. I've done you some. I would not describe myself as a researcher. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to sell myself as one. All the researchers I know that are friends of you're mine curious. are going to be like. You're curious. Not you're, you're you're constantly curious. It seems like. But so 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 what 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 do you what do you know about what that looks like? You know, from some in any sort of statistical. In terms of, of 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 like, 
a regularity of of some sort of sexual activity or i mean i mean i think one of the things you you mentioned when that in that talk with that you did it was for your dissertation i think but uh, that sensuality and sexuality can be this sort of overlapping piece too that people kind of forget about oh yeah i mean like you know i don't know that i have like uh, super specific stats by any stretch of the imagination on like these kind of impacts but you know when when you think about things like like okay sensuality and sexuality right like I think when people think about sex they think about it in this very compartmentalized way right it's this thing that occurs in a box in a relationship right but it really is a thing that like I think of sex more like a like an energy that's like being built right like a circuit like it's always moving and it's always changing and especially if it's in like a partnership of some kind of way shape or form like I talk with people a lot about like in like putting money in the bank right like you know sort of like tossing things in the bucket for later right and so one of the things that I'll talk with people a lot about is like building sensuality in their relationship and you know it it's really interesting to me because like you know I did you brought up my dissertation area right and so a really common struggle that people have in in partnerships is that when partners maybe become parents right it changes the dynamic of sometimes like how they engage with one another because things become more transactional because yeah. life is just very busy, right? Yeah. And so it's like, oh, hey, did you get A done? Hey, did you get B done? What about A? And so that's it's shifting more into like being like co-parents, almost like business partners right. and right. And and that's not no one's doing anything wrong. That's just what life is requiring, yeah. right? Like, but the problem is is then people try to then move back into sex in the way that they typically would have before. But like it's kind of like going from zero to one hundred. There's not yeah. like an on ramp in the right. same way that there maybe used to be yeah. because they weren't hanging out, going on a date, building that sensuality, giving flirty touches, yeah. and like hands on backs. They were cleaning up maybe diapers or like spilled Cheerios or they're coming home from work and they get to sit down for five seconds before someone's touching them and they don't want to be touched anymore by a small child. And so, you know, a lot of times what happens is people, again, not because they're doing anything wrong, but they just sort of lose some of that sensuality that they maybe had with a partner. And that sensuality and that sensual touch stuff is really often an on-ramp for sex because if people are like, go, 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 and then all of a sudden they're in the bedroom at night and they look at each other and it's like, oh, well, are you ready? Like it just, it doesn't have the same sort of dynamic that it used to. It's too too abrupt for individuals. And so, and not everybody, but for a lot of people, they can describe that as like, well, then it just becomes like, okay, well, then I guess it's very all or nothing. Like we don't touch or we don't engage sexually. And obviously that starts to have an impact on all sorts of areas of a person's sort of mental health and individual functioning, right? So let's say I can think of couples I've worked with where maybe somebody has high desire and they're constantly feeling rejected, right? Like they're constantly feeling rejected by their partner and that starts to make them feel less attractive, less worthwhile. It can reduce people's self-esteem, right? And their sense of sort of worthiness to somebody, especially if maybe that's the way that they feel and experience more love. And then you can have a person that really doesn't have much desire at all in that dynamic feeling really guilty, but also resentful, right? right? They maybe feel really guilty that they know that they're not like maybe meeting up to some expect some vague expectation that they're supposed right. to meeting up to or the expectation of their partner. So they feel really guilty. And then they also might start talking about 
at the same time feeling really angry that their partner's putting that on them when they see how chaotic everything else right. is all of the time. And I would say that that's a really common dynamic. And so you see those kind of individual impacts to mental health where it starts to chip away at not just the relational dynamic, but also because a lot of times couples are both like frustrated by it's really interesting. I have some like really amazing couples. They're both super frustrated with how things are going, but they're also like, we get it. We get why. Yeah. But it is, it's impacting me. And I, you know. Yeah. And, and sometimes I think we, maybe one of the things we can learn is, is sort of these on-ramps, what you're talking about, or, or bridges to sensuality or something, mm-hmm. you know, because, I, and I, I've, I've seen studies about how, I think just hugging or spending enough oh, yeah. uh, that that much time like in physical contact with your person leads to a higher percentage of, of sexual activity too. Yeah, I mean, I think that you look at um, like sort of touch when 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 people kind of stop engaging in day to day touch, right? Like I talk to yeah. people about the continuum of touch, right? You have platonic touch, which is kind of like I don't know, fist bumps bro hugs, right? Like, and then you have affectionate touch, which is like, you know, like maybe holding hands or a hug, right? Or like a pat on the back. And then what's really interesting is I'll ask people like, and then you have sensual touch. And what is that? Mm -hmm. And it's really hard for people to define, right? I would define sensual touch as something that, you know, you could probably get away with in a restaurant, but you probably wouldn't do with a sibling, Right. Like, you know, and and for some people, something that's sensual might feel sexual and those things can can kind of overlap. Um, But a lot of people, when I ask them what kind of touch they've been engaging in, people start to, especially when there's maybe sexual tensions, start to move away even from like affectionate touch because they don't want it to be like, let's say someone is lower desire. They don't want it to be misread. Yeah. as a sexual like invite. And so people start to move further and further away. So by the time I see people, maybe it isn't just that they've moved away from sexual touch and sensual touch, now even affectionate touch or frankly platonic, yeah. right? Where someone's really tense or on edge when someone tries to touch them, not because they literally are like, I don't like my partner touching me. It's this makes me really anxious because, you know, because we have a tendency to chain things together. This makes me anxious because when my partner touches me, I'm worried that they're going to try to initiate sex at some point and they're going to take this as a cue and then we're going to have a fight right. and then we're going to have to have a really bad night. Yeah. So touch is no longer just about touch. It's about this chain of all of these other things. Yeah. Sorry, that was a tangent. But No, but that, I, <laughs> but, but, but I think it, it, it yeah, I, when, you're, when you're talking about this, I'm thinking about the fact that I am such a touch person by nature. And I had a pretty touchy family. I mean, you know, like back in the 70s, people would like kiss each other on the mouth all the time. Like that that was a very normal part. And lots of like sort of hugs and hands-on and just sort of, you know, together in, in physical contact. I feel like that was – and I also grew up with a, just, just my mom. So like we always – I felt like we're fairly close that way too. Um, but I and, – and I guess in most of my friendships too, like – I hug my guy friends, you know, big old tight hugs mm-hmm. and stuff. Like I'm just used to in my, and I've even had to like, you know, this, this was taught to me that I shouldn't be, you know, physical with my clients like this. But, you know, I, some of these people I've worked with for so long, or I go through really emotional things with them and they ask me, can I, can I, can mm-hmm. I give you a hug afterwards? Absolutely. You know, but I think it's, I think it's also because of my comfort that they're, right. they're looking for a good hug, you know, like that's, that's part of it. I've, I know I'm also got my hands on people all day right. long. I'm just so used to like be, being that. So 
you know, the, and, and I'm thinking about it in relation to like my kids have gotten massages before they go to sleep every night. They have very specific massages they want too. Just <laughs> lucky like, kids. <laughs> you know, really tickly touch or I want you to squeeze my feet really hard or just like they, they know what they want. But I, I, I love that part with, with them too, that they really sort of have this sense of we learn so much from people touching our bodies too. Just I mean, and it, and it does settle our system if it's if it's mm-hmm. good. If if that if if that's like a regular part of your behavior. But it makes me think we should be teaching some of this stuff. I feel like touch has gotten so like <laughs> out of our out of our culture. There's this is really interesting study that 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 went on a while back. I, I can't remember how how long ago it was, but. It was it was a study of cafes all over the world and how often people touched each other per hour, and I think Americans touch each other on on average of like two times an hour. Puerto Ricans touch each other two hundred times an hour, and mm-hmm. I think there's something about the way different cultures are as far as that comfort goes that does I think really lead to to better like mental health, communal health, you know, relationships and everything. Yeah, I mean, and, and too, if you think about, like, so you just described yourself as, like, a person that's, like, just touches really, it sounds like just really integrated with, like, your identity and who you are, right? And now I'm at, like, imagine that kind of, like, I have clients that, like, it's a part of their identity and it's this very integrated thing in who they are. And now all of a sudden, that can't be expressed, yeah, right? Yeah, that's, this, that's like, difficult. This, like, really essential part, like, essential is a word that people use often in my office. Like, mm. my expression, like, even, like, a, a, and it starts to get, I think, really hard for individuals when it's, like, this really essential part of me cannot be expressed. And not only can it not be expressed, it feels harmful to someone else yeah, yeah. in the in that I do it or it feels not okay or it feels like it's, and, and there's something really devastating about that to people. And people have a lot of distress. But on the other end of that, like, it's hard to villainize the other person because the other person is often having these, like, I would say, like, sort of um, autonomic sort of responses, oh, totally. right, to touch. Because it's not like they're they're purposefully being touch avoidant often. It's usually just like, you know, we, we are creatures of association, right? Yeah. And so certain things start to be paired together. And also like, you know, you think about some people, like if you're stressed throughout the day and your central nervous system's a little more cranked up, you become, some people become a little more sensitive. And so what would feel nice under one circumstance now suddenly feels like almost like jarring or really uncomfortable. And so nobody, I always talk to couples a lot about like, that are maybe in these kind of dynamics about like, you know, nobody's doing anything wrong, right? Like, because when I see people often, it's like, whose fault? And we do this all the time too. When people break up, we're like, whose fault was it? I don't know. What if it was no one's fault? What if it was just like hard and there were some compatibility issues or like things went awry in a way that no one could really control? Um, And so one of the first things that I try to really do with couples is getting couples like, I talk about them about like I want to get you sitting on the same like sitting on the be- sitting on the same side of a bench right versus two benches where you're looking across from each other and the problem is sitting in the middle of you. Yeah. I want you sitting together on that bench looking at the problem in front of you. Yeah. Because the reality is like if somebody let's say it's a low desire high desire problem right, if the person that had a lower desire could crank it up they would, and if the person that had a higher desire could crank it down they would right. It's no if they were single there's no problem it's only within the dynamic that that problem exists right and that's something that i it's probably like day one first session thing that i'm trying to really start to integrate right away because 
in a scenario like that, like they really need each other to get through it. Yeah. And oftentimes people try to work through it from these adversarial right. sort of positions because, you know, someone feels like maybe someone's taking something from them and another person might feel like someone's forcing something upon them. And I'm really trying to get people to see that, like, no, I think both of you are maybe losing some really, as like, important aspects of your own right. mental health, your yeah. identity. Yeah. And, like, that stuff is real. But it's also maybe – and don't be wrong. Sometimes someone is behaving poorly. Right? Yeah, like, of course. And I, I don't know that I'd say fault, but someone's not behaving yeah. well. Yeah. Right? But more often than not, no one's really purposefully trying to create these problems. It's just that – the dynamics have sort of cascaded in a way yeah. that now you have these problems with maybe an individual or two people that or three who depends what the situation is where someone, you know, starts to feel like they're losing these really essential pieces of themselves or they're being forced to be someone that they're not. Right. So it's very interesting. A lot of some of the stuff starts to come into like identity sort of work. When we talk about mental yeah, health, that, that's a that's, huge part of mental health. That, that makes sense. I mean, because you, you have to start out sort of understanding what your core values are and then move forward with, with the conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you have to decide, like, I think, too, when people are like, hey, this is a really essential part of who I am, you know, like, I've also had to work with folks that maybe had to end up leaving a relationship yeah. that they, because it's all a cost-benefit analysis, right? And the reality is it's not mine to make, right? It's not my life. I can't decide for someone, like, you can do this. Yeah. No, you can't, right? And, and I don't say that to be, like, a super huge bummer, but, like, sometimes people have to decide, like, how important is this for me and like who I am? Because it's not just about like getting laid, right? Right. It's about all of these other really important things that maybe a sexual life or a sexual particular type of sexual experience feels like it are. I'm, I'm talking a lot about high desire and low desire, but sometimes right. conflicts are about like the types of sex that people want to be having. Right. Or like, you know, what levels of energy and enthusiasm are people coming, right? Yeah. And if some of these things feel really essential to identity, it's really hard to just say, well, you should just give that up because, right. you know, it might be really important to like who that person feels like they are. Because again, it's, it's not just as simple as, uh, you know, getting laid. And I say that because I think that there's some messaging around that. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of times if people talk to friends, they should be like, well, so-and-so should just blank. Well, if there was any just about it, they'd probably already be doing it. Right. <laughs> like, right. And, and, and we're just talking about couples, but how does masturbation play into this? Around um, around mental health. Yeah, I mean, well, it probably depends on how that person feels about masturbation. <laughs> well, that, that's that, that's <laughs> yeah. what I that's my that was my next question. Yeah, like, so like you know, I think that masturbation, if if someone has like, it depends on the relationship that they have with it, right, and like their values around it. Like I have yeah. some people, or interestingly, if someone has a partner that's not okay with it too, like that's also another thing that might occur. Like so, you know, a lot of the dialogues that I have around masturbation are often around um, not just the act of masturbation, but like sort of the more holistic dynamic of like what occurs in people's heads during masturbation. I actually have far mm. more conversations about that and people being distressed about like the fantasies that they have or the thoughts uh, that they have yeah. and what do those thoughts or what do those fantasies mean about like who they are and like I'm turned on by A, by B, by C. What does that mean about me? Yeah. And yeah. That's honestly, frankly, when I talk about shame, like there's a lot of shame stuff that often can come in there, especially yeah, if maybe someone's that. received a lot of very negative messaging about masturbation and also about fantasy, or maybe yeah. there's a very narrow belief on belief systems on like what 
healthy sexuality looks like, right? Like maybe they've and religion not. plays into it, I'm sure. Yeah, religion or cultural variables or things like that. Or and former partners. Or... Yeah, you know, you know, and and that is something that comes up a lot, like former partners or current partners, where maybe somebody's like, "That's gross. What's wrong with you? Yeah, that that's yeah. something that you like." I've had dynamics in which someone's caught a partner masturbating and felt really betrayed by it. So then the person now suddenly feels very bad about their yeah, masturbation, oh yeah. but they didn't yeah. before. You know, there's there's sort of all sorts of ways that that can show up. Um, I think it's a really, when you can get people into a good place with it, it's a really helpful tool. Right, <laughs> to right. Like, can I use it a lot very therapeutically to help people, um, you know, engage with their bodies in ways to like meet certain needs or to learn certain skill sets. Like I, I mentioned that I work with a lot of sexual pain, right. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, not shockingly when things start to create a lot of pain, people start to have a lot of anxiety that gets paired with it. Right. And so I tend to use masturbation a lot as a way to start working on anxiety around touch and particularly sexual touch, Mm -hmm. because usually by the time I started working with people, there's maybe been a lot of sexual avoidance. And so you can't just be like, all right, here, now trust another person to touch you. (laughs) Right. Right? Like a lot of, a lot of times, I mean, sometimes, I mean, I've worked with couples that have like had a partner who's just been like someone with sexual pain who had a partner that was like, they felt really comfortable with. But a lot of times, even if they like consciously feel super, you know, like there's that book, The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah, yeah. I don't, who wrote that? I don't remember. <laughs> but it's. I was just talking about it with somebody last week, actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like um, that kind of idea that like someone can consciously sort of be like, I totally trust this person. And then that person tries to touch them. And now all of a sudden they're going into like a pain response yeah. or they're like really tightening up and everything's yeah. like kind of recurring in their body. A lot of the work I do is sort of helping people sort of start to, in, in many ways, like retrain that sort of reflex, yeah. reflexive response. And masturbation is often a huge tool yeah. in that. And if you think if you think about it, it's it's similar to a meditation of sorts. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, you're 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 getting to be sort of quiet with just yourself on some mm-hmm. level. And, and obviously, like, pornography can, like, take you out of that place. But I think there's still there's still a part of that that's sort of keeping you, like, just within your own experience. Yeah, well, and, and I think that there's something, too, like, we have our individual diet, like, we have our individual sexuality and our dyadic sexuality, yeah, right? Yeah. right? And those two things, like, a, there's a it, Venn explain, diagram, right? Ex- explain dyadic for Yeah, so, who... like, dyadic is, like, uh, you and another person, right? Like, how you would be with another person. And so, dyad meaning two, right? Yeah. So, individual sexuality, right? And those things, like, if you think about them like a Venn diagram, right? Like, they intersect, they intersect right? Yeah. They're two circles that intersect. And what's very interesting is a lot of times, you know, like, so we're single, we haven't yet had any sexual partners, we have our individual sexuality, and that's the only kind of sexuality we have, and that's going to be our masturbation and our fantasies and the things that we think about when we're, you know, on our own and whatever. And then it's very interesting, we also have the sexuality that we have with other people, and we sort of have this, like, it's kind of a myth, and I don't know, I don't know that we really speak it in certain ways we do, people will talk in maybe certain religions about being one becoming mm-hmm. one with someone else yeah. where people sort of feel like when they get into a partnership that that individual sexuality now just disappears. Hmm. Right. But I talk with people a lot about like, it doesn't like you no. still have that. You just added someone it's to the interconnected, equation. Interconnected, but it's not. Right. Yeah. And what you'll often see is that in couples that both people also have a really strong sense of individual sexuality, meaning a strong sense of like fantasy and behavior and masturbation that's for themselves. That's on their own also tend to have better sex and better dyadic sexuality because there's sometimes some beliefs that like, hey, like I've heard, I don't even know how many people I've heard talk about like, if you masturbate, you're wasting it, right? Like, (laughs) 
<laughs> it comes up a lot, actually, right? Where people are like, if you masturbate, you're wasting it. You're, you're wasting something. But in reality, when you look at research, I mean, it's very nuanced, but you, you actually see often the opposite, right? That yeah. like, you know, unless there's always um, exceptions to that, right? If it's like really shameful or if it's like compulsive in a way that's problematic for somebody yeah. or, you know, there's like an issue around that. But if it's just like stuff that someone feels good about on their own, they feel maybe neutral to good about, it It often can enhance, right, that experience yeah. with another person because that's where people can try out new ideas. Yeah. That's where people can try out new types of touch. That helps people develop a language and an understanding of themselves that they can start to communicate to another yeah. person. Yeah. But interestingly, people's individual sexualities often feel really, sometimes, really threatening within a relationship, right? right. Like, like. I did a, like, you mentioned I have a podcast, uh, it's called The University of Pleasure, and we did an episode on, like, I think the title was, What Are You Doing In There?, right, which is <laughs> sort of this panic, right, that people often have around their partner's sort of individual sexual experiences, oh, yeah, and, yeah. you know. That's interesting. That's kind of almost like thought policing around, you know, someone's sexual thoughts yeah. or fantasies, or a lot of fears or insecurities about that, which is a common thing. Yeah, this is this is such great stuff. I, I have one more. I don't, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but um, I'm curious about how why you chose University of Pleasure. Not it's it's cute and all, but I have a feeling just from what I've gotten to know of you that that's that pleasure is actually sort of a, a very simple part of what you're trying to achieve. That it's not you know sometimes anything more than that. Yeah. Well, I mean. <laughs> I think that like uh, you mean for the podcast or in general just as just choosing that for the podcast name but also like how does that relate to to what you're actually trying to achieve yeah I, guess. I mean I think that for me right like one of the things that I love about doing this work with people is that sex is one of the very few ways that adults still get to play right oh, yeah, yeah there's there's something about it that allows you know you you talked about like being almost meditative like taking people like our lives are filled with like, responsibility and things we're supposed to do and things we have to do and things we should do, right? Like, and all of this kind of stuff. And sex and sexuality, like, allows this kind of both personal or bringing other people in forum where as an adult, you get to play and you Mm -hmm. get to fantasize and you get to, in certain ways, like, really engage with joy and touch and sensation in ways that, like, you just don't get to, right, in other areas of your life. And to me, that there's something really special about that. And, like, I want to, like, sort of, like, my, like, life's mission is, like, you should have that. I want you to have that, right? Like, especially if you want to want to have that, right? Like, I'm, I'm aware that some people, like, for them, like, maybe someone that identifies maybe as asexual or something, maybe that's not, you know, maybe, by the way, we won't get deep into asexuality because there's a lot of nuance. Some people that are asexual do have sex indeed. I just need to say that yeah, out yeah, loud, right? Yeah. But, like, for many people, they might really, you know, want that but feel like maybe that's something that they can't have or something that's too far out of reach. Yeah. And so I think more than anything, it's just kind of like life mission. And, and I'm, I'm just, I just feel like there's a, there's a certain amount of like, I don't know if I would even call it puritanical at this point. I think it's just like an ingrained thing that like we, we feel guilty for feeling pleasure on some level, you know, and yet we allow ourselves to have these guilty pleasures, like <laughs> whatever, watching The Bachelor or yeah. eating a pint of Ben and Jerry's or something. But but for some reason, sex seems off the table to yeah. just enjoy that. Yeah, well, and, and there is, like, it's, like, I think it's, it's always a, a good point that, like, we very randomly have decided which pleasures are acceptable, right? Like, yeah. you know, like The Bachelor or, you know, like sports 
Sports, sports are a pleasure. MMA, watching someone kick the crap out of somebody else, that's a pleasure. It's a that's, sadistic one, but it's a pleasure, right, <laughs> nonetheless. And so, like, we've we've allowed certain ones to be acceptable, and then we very have randomly decided, like, but these kind of pleasures aren't acceptable, yeah. right? Like, if you have them, then you should feel, quote-unquote, guilty, right? Yeah. Like, And the reality is it's like, life is hard. Have your pleasure as long as you're not harming somebody else, right, or harming yourself in, in a way that you don't want to be, right, by doing so, like... Yeah. You know, life, I, I, you know, we we talked earlier about studying abroad and I talked about how I, I you know, studied abroad in Paris. Like in, Paris, in France, they talk about joie de vivre, right? Yeah. Like joy of life, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, you know, pleasure is a really important and integrative part of life. And if you're missing that, you're missing a very important component of life. And so I think that that, you know, there are certain things that I did, did not enjoy among living in France, but yeah. that's one of the sort of, I think, philosophies that I can really get on board yeah. with. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Well, we could, we could probably go into more topics, but we'll have you back again. <laughs> okay. This is so much fun, Tara. Thanks so much for Absolutely. doing this with Thanks me. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Dr. Tara Jansen, folks. Check out her podcast, University of Pleasure, anywhere you listen to podcasts with her co-host, Jeremiah James in which they discuss everything from toys and positions to scheduling tricks, getting creative, and consent. If sex has been off the table or an infrequent treat during the pandemic, this might be a way to reignite some interest and get your mind back in the game. Let me know what you thought of this topic in conversation. You can reach out anytime through our contact page at highway2.health. Thanks for listening and for all that you do. Be good to yourself, be kind to each other, and take care of your planet. Be well, my friends. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Nurse Wellness Podcast, hosted by Wendy Garvin Mayo, focuses on the power of stress management and how it's foundational to being your best, doing your best, and giving your best. There's a wonderful episode that you should check out called Letting Go, where Wendy Garvin-Mayo shares six strategies to release control and manage stress effectively. Check out Nurse Wellness Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.